Lord, as we uh, deal with these things today, we pray for uh, an outpouring of your Spirit. We just uh, read a passage about uh, those that repent and believe will receive the gift of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, uh, we have that Spirit here among us this day. The Spirit guides us into truth, so we pray, Lord, you'd guide us into truth from your Word and um, lead us um, into what we're going to do with it, what you're going to do with it through us, for your glory, through Christ. Amen. Uh, just quick note about e- uh, Equipping Leaders International, you know, as one of the missionaries that you support with, uh, you know, we are. Uh, so uh, the ministry is just, it's just exploding. It's incredible. It's doubled in size in the last year, and it's uh, more than doubled in impact because one of the things that's happening in the ministry is that we train nationals to um, uh, teach the courses, and um, uh, we've got about 40 of them in Liberia, and they're just going all over that country (laughs) teaching Bible study methods and... um, the marriage and conferences and the leadership. So we, and they're reaching hundreds. Well, actually they're reaching thousands every year. They reach thousands of pastors who go and train others also. So that's what you're part of what you're involved in and uh, it's going well. So thank you for your prayers and your support uh, for that ministry uh, all over the place. I think we're in, uh, I think last count I had, I think it's 17 different countries And I got an invitation yesterday to uh, maybe go to another one now in South America. So uh, just exciting. So thank you all for participating in that. The text we're going to read today is is Matthew 28. We're going to read from verses uh, 16 to uh, 20. But before I do, I want to set us. Let me set a contrast up. Um, these are some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples 2,000 years ago. That's what this record uh, keeps for us. A lot has really changed since then. He spoke these words to 11 guys standing on a hillside in Galilee. They grew up in Galilee. That's a territory of probably... No more than 40 miles by 40 miles. That's a pretty small space, right? I mean, we go that far to go to dinner someplace. You know? and, uh, and, and that's, but that was their world. That's it. Now, they'd been with Jesus for three years. They, saw, and they heard his teachings. And, uh, the, you know, then they uh, watched him uh, get arrested and crucified for something he didn't do. <laughs> And uh, they know he was dead. Uh, they know he uh, arose from the dead. They walked with him for 40 days after that. And he went back and taught them the scriptures, uh, opened up the scriptures to them. And then he ascended. And the scripture says they were trying to figure out what all this meant. And he's given them this commission. But right before he gives them the commission, it says some doubted. They, they still couldn't really figure it out. There might have been 100 people that would have identified themselves as followers of Jesus back then. That's it. A lot has changed since then. A lot. Let's read these words. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. I mean, you may have people here today that are in worship service, some of you, who are still trying to figure it out and still have doubts. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A lot has changed since he spoke those words. Today... There's an estimated 2.5 billion people who will self-identify as Christians. That's, is there something? Am I, oh, okay, I thought I, <laughs> I got that look on your face like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay, 2.5 billion people. All right, roughly about a third of the population of the earth, a little less than a third. And they're scattered around in every one of the 195 nations that are recognized by the United Nations as nations. The impact of the Christians has radically changed cultures all over the world. I want you to stop and think about it. I want you to grasp this now. It's hard for us to remember this. It's hard for us to really to, to remember this fact. The fact is, in many places in the world where People are healthier, they're more productive, and more prosperity, they're more educated, they're more scientifically advanced, there's more justice in their space, there's less corruption, they enjoy more civil rights than these 11 people ever knew. And it's hard for us to just hang on to that. I mean, the world has been blessed by the presence of Christians compared to what these 11 fellows were experiencing back then. We have really forgotten, a lot of our our people have really forgotten that history, H-I-S, put another S in there, is what? His story. Jesus has been doing something. Um... And it's just not me making this stuff up. Uh, There's a couple of Harvard professors, uh, Lawrence Harrison and Samuel Huntington, are Harvard professors. They don't pretend, they don't don't put in their book, the the book that they wrote is called Culture Matters, fairly recent book. Uh, They don't say anything about being Christians. And they're not writing to a Christian audience. These are academic scholars, Harvard scholars. And they went out and got together other academic scholars, and they asked some questions about what, what's happening in different cultures that produces positive results. So it's a collection of essays. It's just not two guys. It's a collection of many, many uh, scholars, and it's a series of essays. Every chapter is a different essay on a different topic, sociological, anthropological, anthropological you know, all sorts of uh, economics, all sorts of stuff. And there is a, when you read that book, there is a theme that goes through that book. And here's the theme. And they even state it. Every place the Protestant gospel has gone. Every place the Protestant gospel has gone. Even with all of its faults, right? The fact is, 
cultures have been changed for the better. People are healthier, wealthier, more educated. There's more civil rights and all the stuff that I just listed. It's documented. It's a fact. And there's more likely to be democracy in those countries, some form of it. A lot has changed. What happened? Well, it happened that 11 guys took seriously <laughs> what Jesus said to them. That's what happened. These 11 fellows, and then the 100, and then the 3,000 that we read of the scriptures, right? They took these words incredibly seriously. And they were incredibly intentional about making disciples. And they made disciples generation after generation after generation, nation after nation, and, after, and the fact is you are here today because of somebody taking these words seriously and being absolutely intentional about it. Not accidental, but intentional about it. Amen? See where we're going? All right. Now, there's, there's another study that just came out. George Barna, who's a Christian researcher, and he, they've been doing this for years, looking at Christian issues, evangelical Christian issues, all right? And they just, he just put out a new book, which is a summary of a, a study, and he asked the question. What, what they really did in this last study is they went back, uh, they repeated the study that they had done in 1993, and the question that they were looking at in 1993 had to, it revolved around different issues about sharing your faith, about being intentional about the Great Commission. So they had a whole series of things that they researched about that. So they went back and they, and they redid the same thing, and they're asking the question, is there anything different today in 2017 uh, when, uh, to 1993 in the U.S.? And here's what the, uh, um, the, one of the comments in, in the summary was this. In 1993, 89% of Christians who had shared their faith agreed that it is a responsibility of every Christian, every person. That's in contrast to the local church. In local church, they say, well, you know, they don't think of people being in the church. <laughs> but but in 80, 89% of people who shared the faith says it is the responsibility of the individual Christian to share their faith. But today, in 2017, when this was completed, today, only 64% would say that. 25% of Christians, 25% fewer, believe it's their responsibility to share their faith. Personal responsibility, to take seriously what Jesus says. Now, interestingly, they, they say it's the church's responsibility, for somehow they forget the fact that people are in the church and they're part of it. <laughs> but it's kind of a crazy thing. But, uh, but there's all kind of reasons for that. Secularism, materialism, all sorts of isms, the fact that we're in a more hostile culture, you know, government regulations that won't allow you to speak about this and that, you know, all sorts of stuff. But the fact is, sharing the gospel is not as meaningful <laughs> And we're not being as intentional about it. Even in the PCA, and I can't remember exactly what the statistics are, but I think it's this. I, I meant to look this up again, and I, and I forgot to. Last time I did the numbers, it takes 80, in the PCA, it takes 80 church members an entire year 
for one person to come to faith in Christ. When you look at church statistics, I'm a church clerk. I've been a Presbyterian clerk, and I, you know, I'm a number cruncher. You know, that's part of what I do. And uh, it's amazing. Very many churches don't have any conversions. They have membership because somebody gets upset at that church, and they come to this church. It's like taking fish out of one bowl and putting them in the other. You don't have, you know, you're not producing any more fish. You're just moving them from one aquarium to the other. And, you, and the bad thing is they're dying off. And the church is dying off. So, I want to look today, and I want to speak to my heart and your heart too. Because the other side of it is, I realize this. Look, I'm 70, I'll be 74. Yeah, I'll be 74 this year. I'm getting tired. I've been at this for a long time, like you guys, men and women, right? Just kind of want to park, coast a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I, I start looking, well, do I have enough money to outlive me, you know, because, uh, and the answer to that is no. But beside that, uh, you know, I, you know, all sorts of dynamics. You know, our lifestyle is such that uh, we don't get, I you know, hardly get to go fishing anymore. I love fishing. And, ah, man, I just, so then I start trying to figure out ways about it. And I just forget about sharing the gospel. So I want to tell you, I'm talking to me too, all right, and you. Um, need something to just push me back out the door and be mindful to be intentional about the Great Commission. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. It's really three, it's, 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 I don't have a poem, but it's a typical Typical Presbyterian sermon with three points. So, so here they are. Okay, we we have to just look at these words and just and just stop and capture, be captured by the greatness that's in these words. Uh, greatness is inspiring. Uh, I like horse racing, and uh, the Preakness was run yesterday, and Justify won, and Justify is a great horse. Bafford, the trainer, they they asked Bafford, what makes a great horse? And he said, speed. The very first quality of a great horse is speed. The second quality of a great horse is speed, (laughs) and Justify has speed, and it's an awesome horse to watch run. Greatness inspires doesn't it? It's inspirational. So let's, let's ask God to give us a sense of this quickly. We have to trust the greatness of Jesus' authority. Now, when I say trust, um, uh, here's the thing about trust. Martin Luther pointed this out years ago, and, I, and I've loved it ever, ever, ever since I read it. There's, there's three things involved in repentance and faith. One is you got to get the facts right. You know what the, what the facts are. All right? Two, you have to agree that those facts apply to you, assent. Right? What good are the facts if you're not applying them to you? Right? And three, you have to transfer your trust from whatever you were trusting in to those trust in whatever those facts represent. All right? So here's my point. Jesus has great authority and power greater than anything anybody anywhere anytime it is awesome now the word uh, in your english uh no the the word that stands behind the words in english but sometimes it's translated power and sometimes it's translated authority 
There are two different distinct, there's two different aspects. Authority is the right, like uh, the divine right of kings. They have the right, they have the authority. But, they may, but power is something else. Power is the capacity, the ability, the energy, the force to get it done, right? What good is, you know, sometimes you can have the right, but you don't have the power. There was a movie, 1959, Peter Sellers, uh, there was a movie, uh, maybe some of you remember it, The Mouse That Roared. There was this little tiny kingdom that was going bankrupt, and they figured out, here, you know, America is great, right? So, and America always, when they defeat their enemy, they always rebuild them. So we're going to declare war on America. So the duchy of Fintech or Finweck or whatever the little place was, you know, they declare war. Now they got a standing army of 20 men, bows and arrows, and 15th century armor. They had the right, right? They had the authority. They were a sovereign nation. They had the authority. But they didn't have the power, Right? Jesus has both. Jesus has both the authority and the power. Um, just stop and think about some of those things that, that you know from Scripture. There's a storm out on the sea. And what does he do? Peace, be still. And what happens? Calm. Authority and power over nature. There was a man laying on the side of the road, been there for a long, long time, couldn't walk. Jesus walked up to him and did what? Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute, who are you to say your sins are forgiven? I did that in order to show you I have the authority to forgive sins. And let me show you something else. Also have the power. Rise up and walk. And a man got up. the authority and the power over sin. Um, his best, one of his best friends died, wrapped up like a mummy in a tomb for three days. He stinketh. Jesus says what? Lazarus, come forth! And what happens? He has the authority over death. Out he comes. What's interesting about that passage, he comes out all wrapped up. <laughs> and then he says, unwrap it. <laughs> right? Never noticed that until just recently. But, you know, uh, Jesus' authority and power is awesome. There's a guy that's been in chains. He's, he's, he's been captured by legions of demons. No control at all. And, Je- and, and the demons recognize he has authority. Oh, Lord, please don't do this. We know, we know, right? And he says, come out of him. What's, what's the next thing you read? The man was restored to his right mind. Jesus has awesome authority and power. And we have the historical record of that. Jesus says, look, nobody has power or authority to take my life, Right? He says, uh, I lay down my life. Nobody, caught, nobody has the authority to kill me. That's the bottom line. I choose to lay it down, and I choose to raise it up. And that's exactly what he did. Into thy hands, it's now time. He says, it is finished. The time has now come, right? 
And he says, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Laid it down. And he already knew what he was going to do in three days, but he did. Brings it up. Have you thought about that? That's, that's the facts of history. Remember the old, uh, I remember this, uh, uh, Kevin Bacon, good actor, I like good, in, in A Few Good Men, remember that movie? Remember him? he stood before the jury and he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, those are the facts and they are undisputable. Great line. Beloved, these are the facts about Jesus, authority, and his power. And it applies to you when he says to you and to me, go. We don't have the authority to say no. We don't. And the other thing is it, because of his work, we don't have the power to say no. Because as we go, what we're experiencing him and what we are experiencing is him <laughs> sending us. But we need to just get a refresher in our brain, in our emotions, in our will. We, just, we need to be captured afresh. Holy Spirit, capture our hearts afresh by the authority that he has and the power that he has. It's great. It's big. It's large. It's impressive. It's beyond our authority, beyond our power, any power. That's the historical reality. And that's still true today. It is still true today. Um, uh, there was this fellow, um, his wife uh, had come to a church that I pastored for some time, and uh, his wife was a believer. Dan was not. Dan was uh, uh, a professional drug salesman. <laughs> he had a biological degree, scientific mind, and he would he worked for a drug, he was drug repre- rep- representative for a drug company. So he, he could, uh, he, he did, you know, being a Christian was just stupid. It wasn't scientifically smart, right? You know, he was of that arrogant school of thought. And uh, I'd given him a book, and uh, he came back. He went away for a weekend with his dad to go fishing. He came back. He says, Don, I don't know what happened. I really don't. One day I didn't believe. The next day I did. What's that a demonstration of? That is Jesus. Authority and power. And he was so convinced of it that he gave his dad the book <laughs> and would start trying to win his dad to Christ right away. Jesus does it. It's his authority. It's his power. And, and it supplies to us in two ways. One, it kicks our butt and says, get out of the chair. Go do it. Take me seriously. Be intentional about your time. When you go through Publix, think about, look in the eyes of that person. Are they lost or saved? Do they need to hear the gospel? Do they need to have some sense of a witness? Do you need to somehow communicate the gospel? Like Judy, pass out sweets and give them a kiss, right? Uh, somehow they need to see it, right? But be intentional about it. Um, move out 
and then also bear in mind the fact that you're not going to convert anybody. There's a great irony here. I was trying to think of the quote. Sort of like the difference between an Arminian and a Calvinist, but you know, live like live like you can save every or live like yeah, live well, whatever it is. The point well, be so motivated that you you get this you have this emotional sense that if I don't preach the gospel, these people are going to die and go to hell. Right, but at the same time, remember the fact you can't convert anybody. Right, <laughs> it's his work. No man comes to the Father unless I, Jesus, Him, He does it. Draw it. But your job is to preach it. Your job is to be obedient to the gospel and in and be uh, enthusiastic about it because it doesn't depend on you. You know, your job is just to tell the message. It's His power that makes it work. Right. So it's, that, it's living in that tension of both of those things, but it's, it's having the sense of obligation as his disciples to go, be intentional, be absolutely intentional about the king as he commands you to do it. The second thing is that we must, um, so the, the first is we must trust his, this great authority and his power. The second is we need to be captured by the greatness of the mission that Jesus was on, the mission, the purpose um, uh, what, was he, what was he trying to accomplish? Well, you could look at it from a variety of perspectives. The, the per- perspective I would put before you today is that um, he came as the seed of Abraham. Now, you, many of you are probably well-versed in the Bible, and the seed of Abraham you know, means that he's a descendant of Abraham, and he is the one who receives the promises made to Abraham. And in the covenant that God made with Abraham... Uh, In that passage in Genesis 12, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That is, leave your paganism, leave your family, leave everything and make me first. And I will make of you a great nation. Notice, a great nation, that's one. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. All right? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus ha- And Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Paul is clear about that in Galatians 3. He is the seed. He is the descendant that, through which all these blessings will come. And, and in that passage... Abraham is promised to have uh, impact on a much larger group of people than just a bunch of little Jewish people in Palestine. Before I build that out a little bit, let me say this. When I think of blessing, in the Scriptures in Deuteronomy 28, God contrasts his blessings and a curse. And he, and he says, I will bless you. And he says, here's what I'll do when I bless you. You will be blessed in the fruit of your womb. You will be blessed in the fruit of your ground. You will be blessed in the fruit of your cattle. Uh, when, uh, you will be blessed when you go out and when you come in. That is, think about it. You, you walk out the door in the morning. You walk back in the door at night. You'll be blessed while you're moving around, right? Uh, you will be, uh, your enemies who rise up against you, they'll be defeated. Your barns, they'll shall all be full. Uh, I will establish you and make you a holy people uh, to me. Uh, so 
these are the blessings. Well, our cultures where the Protestant gospel have gone, they've enjoyed, they've enjoyed those things. Progressively, progressively, more and more. I will bless you. Jesus' mission is to change cultures. We lost it all in the garden because of Adam, right? And, and as the Christians go out, we change the world. That's our job. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was much more than just get a, a dozen guys and teach them the Bible. Jesus' mission was to change the world. Now, think about this a minute. In, in theology, you talk about this covenant redemption that happens before the world ever is created. And the reason that we have that concept is that Jesus says, all the Father has given to me. Now, when, when, when was Jesus given? Before the foundation of the earth, right? We were in Christ before the foundation of the world. So imagine this. You're up there in heaven, and you're just watching the Trinity. God the Father says, look, I don't know. You know, I got... Four billion two hundred. What comes after a billion? Trillion? Yeah, I got four. Right, four billion three hundred and ten trillion. Uh, you know, seven hundred nine million. You know, uh, three hundred and ten uh, people. There they are, Jesus. They're yours. All right. Now they're all messed up because we're going to have sin. You know, that's the plan. And and you're going to die for them, right? You're going to rise from the dead. You're going to train people to go out there and teach them. But your job is to, is, is to work in them and, ch- and then change the world. That's your job. That's your mission. That's your mission. That's your mission. Uh, in the business world, there's something they call a BHAG. Does anybody know what a BHAG is? B-H-A-G? Any business thing? BHAG? Clinton wrote, uh, anyway, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. And the idea is this. When people have a big, hairy, audacious goal, and they know they can contribute to it, it's motivational. It gets people excited. When I have a part in changing the world, my life is not meaningless. My life is not a humdrum, boring thing that I have to fill up with golf and, and I don't know, whatever, you know, men, we fill up our lives with all sorts of stuff, you know, fishing, cars, uh, managing portfolios, you know, women, you know, they fill up their lives with trying to have perfect kids or perfect grandkids and, uh, uh, you know, whatever, decorating the house. Because we're looking for something bigger. We need meaning. We need purpose. Why settle for the little goals? You know, get a capture. Get captured by the big goal. To change the world. That's what we're engaged in. That's your job, right? Jesus has a big mission. And uh, we're all about leadership training. That's what, equipping leaders international, that's what we do, leadership training. So here Jesus takes these uh, 11 guys and he trains them. Here's your job, guys, change the world, all right? And I'm gonna train you how to do it. And then you're gonna train somebody else how to do it. And they're gonna train somebody else how to do it. And they're gonna train somebody else how to do it. And somebody's gonna train you how to do it, all right? So that, that's what we're engaged in. Are you with me? That's the facts. That's what the king says. That's what the king is up to. And that's what the king is using his authority and power to do, is to change the world. And to, you know, the Bible says that uh, 
Jesus, no, God is in the world, 2 Corinthians 5. God is in the world reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. And, and then Paul goes on to say, we are his ambassadors. And then Paul says this, I look at no man after the flesh. You see, he gets it. He gets it. His eyes, his perspective, his worldview. He doesn't look at them as just being creatures messing around with day-to-day activities. He looks at them with eyes like Jesus did. Convert the individual, convert the world he lives in. And, and then it says, when Jesus has subdued all things, he's going to give it back to the Father. Our job is to be engaged in a great mission with him. And the third thing is uh, we got to see the greatness of his presence. The greatness of his presence. He says, I will be with you even until the end of the age. We don't do it alone. No, we're never alone. He is always with us. Moses in Exodus 33, as he's getting ready to go up to battle, he, he's, you know, he's engaged in bearing witness and testimony to the people around him, to a pagan world. And he, as he goes up, the Lord, because, because they had sinned, he, he, the Lord says, I'm not going with you. And Moses comes back and he argues with the world. He, uh, he argues with the Lord. What do you mean you're not going with me? If you don't go with me, how will they know that we're different? The presence of God with him was his energy, but it was also his distinctive. So God goes with him. <laughs> Sends his angel. Joshua, the Lord comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, here, I want you to be strong. I want you to be courageous. It's the same way we're saying to you. You know, I'm, I'm trying to say to myself and to you, look, you and I, we, we need to be strong and courageous. Uh, we're going to war. We live in a hostile country. I mean, uh, hostile to Christianity, Right? And uh, we need to be courageous. So where does Joshua's courage come from? The Lord says to him, you're not going to fight the battle. I am. I will be with you. And those words are laced throughout, this, throughout the scriptures. Uh, you come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He had to go out and tell people they're sinners. That's what his job was. That's what his job was, to go out and tell people you're sinners. You know? But there's going to come a day uh, you know, that the Lord makes available to you a new heart. So we're going to change that. But he had to go out and preach the gospel. And in Jeremiah 17, what's the Lord say? I will be with you. Don't worry, Joshua. I know they call you the weeping prophet, and I know you cry yourself to bed every night over this, but not to worry. I will be with you. That's the promise. And in the New Testament, you read, they, they couldn't figure it out. They, they just knew that these people had been with Jesus. They knew that. I mean, they said that. You know, we know, we can't deny this because we know that they've been with Jesus. Right? <laughs> He's with us. Now, I don't have any flaming flung tongues of fire, you know, like Acts. So how do, I know, how do I know the Spirit? And I'm coming to a close, all right? How do I know the Spirit is with me? How do you know the Spirit is with you? Here's how you know. Do you ever feel conviction of sin? Huh? Yep. Do you ever get convinced that, that Jesus is righteous, right? 
Do you ever get a sense that you've passed through the judgment in Jesus? Yep. John, what, 16, 50? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever have a sense that Jesus is, uh, that God is my father? I can call him daddy, Abba, father. What's that? That's the spirit of adoption. That is the spirit in you, right? Um, And when you read the scriptures, does it ring true to you like this is truth? Does it? Well, yeah, that's not you. You haven't figured that out. It's why you can. That's why. That's why Dan could read the Bible, grow up in Sunday school, and, and be exposed to the Bible and never get it, right? And then, and then he come back on the weekend and he said, "Now I got it." Well, that, that's because that's the Spirit at work there. That's Jesus with you. There's a guy by the name of uh, uh, J.D. Greer wrote a book. I I recommend it to everybody. You need to get this book and read it. It's called Jesus Continuing. And here's the thesis. Here's the subtitle. The Holy Spirit with you is better than Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus beside you. Haven't you ever had this thought that, oh, if Jesus was only here today beside me, holding my hand, if he went, if he went on the evangelism trip with me and there he was right there, it would be a whole lot easier, right? Right? <laughs> Greer's point is, no, it wouldn't. The spirit inside you is even better than that. Read the book. It is great. It's energizing. Okay. So, bottom line, we, we, just, we just need to be captured by the greatness of, the, of Jesus' authority and Jesus' power. We need to be captured by the greatness of Jesus' mission, and we need to be captured by the greatness of Jesus' presence. We need to cultivate it enjoy it and go be obedient and may god grow this church more and more and more by more and more people coming to faith in christ because of your witness lord jesus help us to do that we ask it in your name for your glory amen